Welcome to Ahali, a series of conversations where I, Can Altay, meet with ear-opening thinkers, artists, creators, and designers to discuss the future of cultural production. Let's start with what Ahali means. It refers to a community that flows, that doesn't have boundaries, yet nevertheless producing a meaningful togetherness. Ahali is freed from the binding understanding of kinship, origin, or belief. It's about a culture of being together. Ahali generates a knowledge that is not fixed and always open for newcomers. So welcome to Ahali Conversations. For the third episode of Ahali Conversations, we are hosting Ahmet Öğüt, an internationally acclaimed artist and someone I know from back when he was a young painter still studying in my hometown Ankara. And through the years, he's become a globetrotter. He's become a kind of tireless people's person, as well as a hacker of sorts who operates in the art industry and in the art worlds and whose art making competence has allowed him to infiltrate institutions from within to create parasitic organizations that instigate change. Ahmed joined our conversation from Amsterdam. He was stuck during the COVID-19 lockdown. So we start our conversation from there and then we dive into his rotations, his practice, how he have learned to navigate the art world and all the meanwhile challenging the norms and politics using his personal brand of humor and solidarity. Welcome to Ahali Conversations, Ahmed. It's good to have you. So at the moment, I just managed to come to Amsterdam. 8th of March, I got a call. I was still in Berlin and I was living between Berlin and Amsterdam. At the time, I got a call from the director of the museum in uh, Azerbaijan, in Baku, where I was about to open a solo show. And she called me and she said, you know, Ahmed, I know it doesn't sound maybe serious, but this corona thing is becoming like a thing. We need to think about it. It still felt far away, but also nearby. Because a month and a half before that, already a trip of mine was cancelled. I was going to go to Hong Kong to give a talk during Art Basel. And I asked Baku if he can, you know, squeeze in, make the opening earlier, and I can go Hong Kong for three, four days, which was an insane idea. But just because I wanted to see my friends there and I wanted to go there, after a long time, I wanted to squeeze this crazy trip in between, which is for three days. Like It just doesn't make any sense. And there are a lot of things that we would like to do. And before, you know, this crisis, as artists, the places we would like to go, friends we would like to see. But there are also places that we do it because of the project, not that we are, have specific interest in that city or the country. We might end up in that place many times or because of our contracts, we might have to go several times. So this could have been any other place. At the time, it was Hong Kong and Baku. It's a very random combination, which I would not even imagine myself. But my life is so random since last 10 years because of my art practice. I never had time to plan holidays or choose a destination to go myself. It was always chosen for me. And it was not always desirable for myself, but I always try to make best of it. If I go to a place that it's the worst climate, I don't want to be the worst time of the year. I still focus on the work and I try to make it cheerful and enjoyable for myself. So this is how, how I survived and start doing those site-specific works. 
Not that it was part of the nature of my practice at the beginning, not at all. But I start doing that because of those trips and visiting sites. You know, I had zero knowledge about architecture or anything like that. Like visiting a site culture wasn't really a part of my education in the beginning. And getting a knowledge like that, local knowledge in such a short time. So I developed those skills that are kind of now useless. But for a long time, it was <laughs> useful for quick, short trips that I was often forced to go. And I tried to turn them into joyful trips. And I was worried about the speeds we had. Going back to the recent situation, that phone call came. I had to think, uh, okay, there wasn't any announcement yet by the WHO Global Health Organization, or there wasn't any announcement by Azerbaijan government, or government in Turkey, or Germany yet. It all happened in three days. And I had to take a decision just before that three days, like maybe two nights before. I was kind of unlucky because they would make my decision easier because that wouldn't be my own decision. So I had to decide, do I want to go to a trip that's a little bit uncertain, but what's going to change within you know a week or so, I will be back. So it can't be so radical change. That is, for, for so many months, nothing was happening. And uh, since it started, so I didn't think that was speed up in that uh, week. But I usually... Consider all the possibilities before I go to any trip. So the crisis has been part of my practice, especially since 2008. That was the first crisis, which was a big earthquake in New Zealand that I had to deal with uh, while trying to make my project. And since then, a lot of things has happened that has nothing to do with my practice directly, but it was this crisis and how art institution dealt with those crises. So I was thinking crisis related to political crisis and crisis related to natural forces. Mm -hmm. uh, I was not thinking pandemic as a category, but now it's became on its own another category when you divide the crisis. So I was talking about crisis all the time, especially the last couple of years in places that everybody thought they are in peace for a long time. So when uh, in Europe, somebody asked me, why well, you are always interested in the issue of crisis. I was saying, why do you think it's never going to come here? The answer, my answer was always from the European perspective. Why do you think crisis is always something far away? Something that we always have to have an empathy instead of thinking that what do we do when it happens to us where we are? You know, doesn't matter. And now we see the situation, it's exactly happening where we are. It's not far away this time. And it's also kind of more synchronized. It's impossible to ignore it. Anyway, after that, I went to that trip. I thought if I quit my trip for my solo show, which I worked for for a year, I shouldn't travel anywhere for, you know, next six months. None of the other reasons is good enough for me to travel. And worst case, I just, on the way back, I'm passing Istanbul. I can stay there for a bit until it comes down a couple of days. So I felt something might happen, but I had no clue. So uh, the whole announcement was done the day after I arrived to Azerbaijan. I was almost going to get stuck there. That day we realized we can't open the show. We started installing it and then I moved to Istanbul and I was going to be there a couple of days to go to Berlin. And since then, it was 13th of March, I can't return to Berlin where my flat was. So now until life with that little decision, I could have just stayed in Berlin has changed because I was also relying on the fact like for many years, there's such thing like European Union, which I knew it was kind of a false idea, but for a degree, it could be put in practice. So I could live between Amsterdam and 
Berlin and still occasionally go to Istanbul. So at the end, I didn't get stuck in Azerbaijan with intuition. I changed my flight ticket to that Friday and that was the last flight, basically. I didn't know it was going to be the last flight. So I realized the speed of escalation was exactly how the crisis happens. The first decision was not crisis yet. It was still something to come in the near future when I took the flight from Berlin to Azerbaijan. But after two days, it became exactly every second, every hour matters. And this was the last time I had that feeling was during the summer of 2016 when I was in Istanbul for an exhibition when the military coup attempt happened. Mm. So that night was also every minute, every hour did matter. You didn't have even a 24 hours to think about it. So that's the interesting thing about the crisis. You don't have time to think about it. You know, you don't have time to sit back and think of the best strategy to deal with it. Yeah, maybe in a way that we can link that to your kind of responsive muscle, in a sense, that you've developed throughout the years. I mean, of course, not in such kind of necessarily speedy responses, but your practice really evolved, as you mentioned, from these kind of provocations or objects or images towards more something of an immediate response to a particular environment, to a particular condition, and also coming up with other possibilities, other modes of organizing. I mean, I'm thinking of like the intern lounge you did in Dubai. I'm also thinking of like much larger scale projects such as Silent University. So in a way, building this kind of counter institutions or proto quasi counter institutions, something like that. And in a way, there seems to be on the one hand, a kind of snappy immediate response to the crisis, but also it feels to me that we are also in search of alternatives from within that crisis. So maybe we can yeah. talk a little bit about that. Yeah, let's, so uh, let's talk about the general methodology, how I found a way to deal with this kind of situations. First of all, I was unhappy about the speed in the art world that everyone was interested in something new, not something ongoing, not something that is sustained, not something that is maintained. So I wanted to switch that into that. And also I continued my fragmented projects based on exhibitions, you know, one exhibition to another one. I realized I really need a, another anchor. My lifestyle won't be able to change if I just keep up working as an artist. That will be the demand. So I have to do this one exhibition to another one project. But how can I connect them? And how can I make something totally outside of it and force the institutions to uh, fit themselves in that lifetime uh, project? So from short-term projects, I move to long-term ones and then to lifetime ones. And lifetime ones are uh, very much impossible for most institutions. It doesn't matter how big scale they are because their budgeting systems are based on, you know, two years plan, maximum five years plan or a year plan. Mm -hmm. So they cannot really promise anything that is more than five years. Any director cannot promise. I mean, some of them stays very long, but they always renew the contracts. You know, there's these situations. If not the director, everybody else changes the institution. And I change as an artist. So how can I commit into something that is uh, one of those, uh, let's say, parasitic institutions, I call them, Parasitic institution, which is like not an easy institution to deal with within an institution, but that is beyond the people. So it's beyond me as the initiator, like Silent University case. It's beyond the director, current director, or current assistant curator, or the curator, or the staff members. They mm -hmm. make it happen. They guard it. They sustain it. 
But when they go, the format is in a way that it is not depending on the singular energy of one uh, person. So it's not depending on my energy. In the beginning, it did look like, but it's not at all at the end. I became a guest myself. From initiator to guest, I transferred myself. And like I'm being a guest now. So in that my own initiative, I became a guest as that, exactly like that. So new people organizing, inviting me to do panel discussions. They even pay me fees to go join the panel discussions. And also uh, the, the participants, they were the most vulnerable in the, in the beginning. I was in the position to initiator. I became the most vulnerable and the most vulnerable participants became a lot more secure compared to me. I give you an example. For instance, in London, when we started with Silent University, every participants were undocumented and they had no legal documents. And I had a visa for a year. By the time we finished the first year, my visa finished and they got permits. And after three years, I tried to go back with temporary visas to UK to continue because this was the first one and I was involving personally a lot. And after three years, all of them had permits better than mine. It might be worthwhile to also explain a little bit. I think everybody might be familiar, but just in case, they explain the kind of uh, structure of the silent university now that we are yeah. talking about. Very little. I explained very shortly. It was the time, it was 2011-2012, before the so-called migration crisis happened in the press and there was an attention about it. I was in London and asked, uh, invited by Tate Modern and Delfina Foundation to develop a community project. For me, uh, developing a community project within the existing structure of art world is a shame. You know, it's, you should not even start it because you know you will abandon the people after some time. You cannot just three months, six months, something and disappear. And I knew I was going to disappear within a year because my visa was going to run out. So I... I was first critical about that. And then I thought, okay, I need to, whatever idea I will come up with, it has to be beyond me. And then the idea of Silent University came, looking at all the community organizations around uh, South London, especially. So there was any kind of community organization and NGO organization focusing on any kind of category, like they categorized people, old people, like elderly people house, teenagers from Afghanistan, and, you know, because of their ethnicity, age, gender, it's all categorized, and they're all focusing on one group, which was a bit weird for me. They were doing a great job, but for me, I, I, I didn't feel like categorizing people uh, and creating community around the idea of categorizing. This is, this is really a non-hierarchy, like, weird, very, very strange thing. But nobody saw it as a strange thing. And what they do is, you know, good uh, intention projects. What I thought, what I should do, it, just, it shouldn't be focusing on ethnicity of the age or, or where people come from, but something focusing around the knowledge. And knowledge that people will come undocumented at the time, especially to UK, they were not recognized for a long time. You know, they wait for the basic document permission to stay sometimes eight years, 10 years. I heard the cases up to 20 years, waiting for a phone call basically to start the life. And if you were a doctor back in your country, if you're a lawyer, you cannot do that, wait that long. You lose, first of all, your skills. And you have to educate yourself after that you get that permission, another 10 years, 20 years to become a doctor in that country. So basically, it becomes useless knowledge. 
And what we did, we immediately activated that knowledge. So everyone who had a kind of a degree and knowledge in their country, somehow the way they got the degree there, they were able to become lecturers at Silent University immediately. So we recognized, uh, we skipped this waiting process. Yeah, the issue of time. So this is a crisis. It was a crisis to come. It wasn't an international crisis, but it was huge in the UK already. That's pre-Brexit and all this, you know. Mm-hmm. So... I thought it is right there at that moment. We need to recognize the situation and everyone that that should like, act uh, as knowledge producers immediately. They should not wait for anything. So it worked very well. Uh, as soon as we established as an uh, university in collaboration with larger art institutions, art foundation at universities and other organizations, migrant uh, research organizations. It worked quite well immediately. They were sitting by the end of the year next to Oxford professors giving you know lectures and stuff in their own language and so on. So the whole process was quite surprising for most academicians and they got into trying to understand how this could work. And it's still on, not in London. London lasted for a couple of years. But Silent University then started replicating itself in other countries. It went to Stockholm, it went to Hamburg, it went to Amman, it went to Athens. Uh, it tried to go to many other places. I just told everyone, this is not a thing that you are used to. You cannot just do it in a regular ac- activist way. You cannot do it in a regular artistic way. It has to be done in a way that it is beyond people. Because both ways, it really depends on whoever is initiating or first group initiating it. And this kind of solidarity acts, they last maximum, you know, two, three years uh, without this kind of structural thing, then they disappear. Now it's almost 10 years. I think that's the interesting part as well, maybe worthwhile touching, because you already mentioned the kind of art world's inclination or desire to always have something new. Whereas this is more of a project that necessitates a certain sustained relationship with its inner organization as well. So how do you hand over the control and who runs it? Uh, we stayed as an informal. There was options. There was options, definitely. And if the community wanted to turn it into a, a kind of association or a registered organization, they would do it. I just recommended not to. <laughs> that, yeah. that would really made it depend on, uh, you know, when you have an association, you need seven people to sign up, somebody needs to do all these things. So what was important for me that I knew it was coming. I knew that I'm not living in those cities, so it cannot be dependent on me, my presence, definitely. A lot of community-engaged artists criticize this kind of thing. At the time, they do day-by-day work, more activist way, you know, with the community. And they say, hey, you are not really linked to community if you are not there all the time, present, sleeping in the same house and cooking together. Yes, this is very important, but those things doesn't last that long. You know, it's really everyone gets tired and they even get into fights with each other. So arguments with each other that they all think the same. They all want to do the same and it doesn't last. So I was thinking what we need to do that we don't do things for, you know, Lucy Lippard also said, we always try to do things for the woman of color, but we didn't think of the fact that we need to do something with them. So Mm -hmm. if you do like do something for refugees and if you call them refugees, this is a failure from the first day and first seconds. You know, you just fail. I see the fact that the participants who were most vulnerable becoming the coordinators, not only lecturers, that lecturing and getting fees is one thing. 
mm-hmm. from you know not worrying about any administrative stuff. And when they gain that confidence that their knowledge is acknowledged, they should have a word in administrative level as well. And this is all problems. A lot of university professors have no word on administrative level, and usually uh, most universities become more corporations based on different decision-making and that destroys the universities. So in our setup was first the most vulnerable who have to be recognized immediately and become acknowledged and respected academics. And then when they become, they are the ones, not the curators in between who initiated in the beginning, not me, not the director of that institution who gives the funding, will decide. They are the ones themselves decide if they want to continue after three years or so. And they're in charge of the budget. So we have this experience in some of the branches it worked, some didn't, and then that's why they failed. So if the director of the, if the first coordinator curator from England, from Sweden, uh, they want to uh, take over the ownership, the -hmm. project fails. So it automatically fails itself when somebody takes too much ownership. So if I take too much ownership, again, it fails. So if I try to do that at some point too much, I would help it fail. So uh, because it didn't happen in uh, some other places, this shift happened from the positions. It survived uh, now 10 years. It has been there. Amazing. So one personal question then, how do you negotiate within your practice or how do you deal with, uh, on the one hand, you have such projects that are really durational, really related to crisis, as you mentioned. And on the other hand, you also, again, pretty much in the responses to crises, but a much more kind of humorous, direct, and in a way, as you said, like lighthearted mode of operation. Uh, I wish I could uh, stay on that side a bit more because it's more relaxed, you know, when I focus on my own artwork and that has that humor and it's teasing the institution and teasing the you know people I work with and they kind of like it also. Uh, and I am just not taking more responsibility than that. At those occasions, I, I miss it, and I wish I could keep it more more present. Now I realize, okay, meanwhile, I still keep it, I try to keep that up, you know, more light approach, but in the context, uh, it is quite deep and strong as well. Uh, it's just the way I do it, it's, it's a gesture, and it's based on this kind of how I started, you know, very, very uh, limited means of production. So I always kept this means of production from one A4 and pencil to huge large scale installations that I can never afford to pay for production myself. You know, so yeah. I I never got stuck when I don't have that large scale budget. I don't stop doing art. I know a lot of artists they don't get funding and they stop doing art. You know, <laughs> because they cannot operate otherwise. I can operate in under any crisis. <laughs> so my yeah. art production is not based on the what we call normal conditions, which is an artist who has a studio, and then the studio suddenly gets some assistants working there, interns, assistants, and it grows to, you know, hundreds of people working there. I don't work like that. I work with a studio. I work everywhere. I work from home anyway. So it's like going from home, working from home yeah. these days. There's no difference. As long as I have a home, a place to stay where I am, which I usually find through the help of my friends, because even if I stuck, get stuck somewhere else, I have a, a place to be and and then I can keep producing as well. You know, I'm not in a rush for that. And then I can have my own schedule with those works because I don't have to deal with institutional structures that I have to read all those pages of contracts. 
I used to just sign contracts because I had this complete trust relationship with some curators that I wouldn't even read the contracts. I would, if the invitation comes from those people, I would just, without reading, sign things. And now, if it comes from uh, somebody, if it, and uh, any institution involves, I know these people, curators even, I know very well. They are also in a position that is not super safe and they probably had to sign themselves such contracts that they, they shouldn't be. I start reading those contracts. So every time I work with an institution, I have to like behave like a lawyer and go through all the things. And then I start noticing things that they shouldn't be there. So there's a lot of negotiation going on there beside the negotiation of the space and concept and why it's necessary to do such project. Uh, okay. It's not like, ah, oh, it's a great project. Let's do it. Uh, often it's not like that. Or oh, we trust you 100% to do whatever you like, which I like that kind of invitation the best. It still sometimes comes because that makes my creativity, you know, like more free. And the result becomes nicer because I don't have that pressure. But if there's no trust, that it really affects the nature of the artwork that is developed. And then you have to develop that kind of strange relationship, you know, almost like a lawyer-to-lawyer kind of relationship with the institution, which can be a conceptual thing to do. And it is entertaining also, although it is tiring. But uh, I would rather not to do that. But I end up often doing that these days. So maybe on that note, you embarked on a kind of investigation with Burak Arkan about the practices of art institutions with regards to their, in a way, behavior towards their, as you mentioned, contracts, towards their laborers, towards their staff. And do you want to say a few things about that as well? Sure. Uh, it is uh, still very much in the beginning, although when you find the graph uh, we developed with Brock, he has this thing called Graph Commons, and we used uh, that software as a base for this. And uh, you find around four or 500 institutions listed there only based on the fact that uh, there was a lot of, you know, uh, news and articles of scandals and uh, strange stuff and good stuff happening uh, in those institutions. For instance, in some countries like US or uh, Holland, hundreds of institutions get together and they sign a protocol that there should be a regulation around artist fees. We have those institutions listed that, that they are good practice institutions when it comes to artist fees. But some of those institutions might be very bad for when it comes to gender issues or racial profiling and you know those issues. So there are some institutions mostly on the side of good practices. And this map helps kind of uh, to see where they are. And easiest way to start with was already uh, published articles and news about uh, what happened internally became public uh, mm-hmm. and we can put on the map. But mm-hmm. we wanted to actually for more focus on the rumor part. There's a lot of rumors, especially when it comes to commercial galleries. Uh, artists mm-hmm. all the time complain. A lot of my friends complain that their work is sold. They don't get their money on time or never. And the work is stolen, taken away and so on. And these artists, including very established artists as well. I'm not talking about no. the artists who cannot defend themselves, who don't have the means to get a lawyer and go after those galleries. I'm talking about the artists who actually are quite okay also financially and they can easily get a lawyer to go after the institution but still prefer not to do it. But still not doing anything, they complain about it to their friends in dinners, in openings here and their informal way. Mm-hmm. So I was a bit like tired of this rumor level um, art world, you know, persons behind institution, institution behind persons. 
because their agenda didn't fit the others. I wanted to think like if there is a way that we can do mapping of this uh, situation and then that can actually help those institutions who do bad practices to stop doing that <laughs> because they see that. Hopefully without making ourselves targets. So we started as well, uh, two of us, but our idea was to have this growing committee and they would all judge the cases. So we would uh, check the models from fact-checking websites and they have uh, very reliable systems how to turn a rumor and compare with a factual thing through other people or through institutions, other people working in those institutions. That's what I also tried to do in the beginning, you know, if I knew anyone working in the institution, but not in the, uh, the level that they would officially ignore that not such thing didn't happen. You could get uh, both side information and there was a lot of conflicted things that not everyone has good intention, also individuals and artists too. So not every case that is submitted to our system was having good intention, you know, even if it looks like it's from the victim who is mm -hmm. claiming to be the victim. Or it could be an interpretation. For instance, cases like Me Too cases are more difficult because you don't have the proof and you can't really you know, put the person who submitted into danger. But there is an observation and systematic observation, but still it's not easy to put it on the map immediately because then we would be easily targeted uh, if we can't prove otherwise. So mm -hmm. this thing's better to publish after it goes to press somehow. And then when journalists do their research, that becomes some sort of proof naturally, and they have different laws applied to them. And that's not a rumor anymore if it's especially a respected newspaper or journal published the case. Absolutely, that's uh, easy to edit on the map. So it's a slow one, and we do it when we have time because it's a lot of work. But mm -hmm. uh, we already have quite many institutions mapped okay. there. It's so, called Code of Acquisitions. If anybody wants to check, it's out there. Yeah, we'll put that on the chat, the Code of Acquisitions. And I thought it was more in response to the current condition, but now I understand that it's actually a much longer term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. It's longer terms. That's why it's not like growing super fast. It mm -hmm. started fast. But we just keep it the way it is. When people think it's a useful tool, when they don't think at that moment it's not a, use, it's not a useful tool for them or they don't see the potential of it, it just stays as it is as an archive. When people use it, it becomes really dynamic and active. And to get there, we need some sort of better structural situation because this cannot be run by a singular institution that we find funding and sure. get it supported. It started with our own initiative without any funding. And even if you ask, consult with the lawyer, we need to pay the lawyer. If we want to have people to take time to go through the cases, you know, a committee of lawyers, galleries, artists, and so on, they will also need something. We would like to offer them something in return. I understand completely. Ahmed, because our kind of agenda has been about speculating on the immediate aftermath of this crisis, whether or not, the exhibition-making practices will have a shift or change? And in what terms can that shift or change take form? So on the one hand, you have a museum-scale solo exhibition that is installed but not open to the public at the moment. On the other hand, you have these ongoing projects that you told us very elaborately about. How do you see 
the current climate and whether it will have any effect and in what form to exhibition making practices? Uh, absolutely, there won't be any any way in between. Today, I heard uh, galleries officially can open in Germany, for instance, which mm-hmm. if they set up the regulations in Holland, I see the shops are open. They write at the door, maximum two people allowed, maximum 20 people allowed, depends on the size and space. And still people need to do that, but it can be applied like right now in Germany, they will open the galleries with that limited number of people having access at the time, they can open the institutions. But this is very state-level thinking. You know, I mm-hmm. imagine artisticians more creative, more dynamic, more responsive. I'm a bit too utopic about that, how artisticians mm-hmm. should be. They should not wait what states tell them. Prime Minister, President goes and announces, hey, now we open the museum, but you need to do these regulations. And they say, yes, we do regulations. We have the disinfection. We have the signs saying people, you know, one and a half meter in between. Uh, not that. This is the boring way. So this is the lazy institution way, and there is a dynamic institution. And so far, there was some a lot of institutions pretending dynamic but being very lazy before. You know, I always had the disappointment whenever I, there was some crisis. I thought that institution would be the best to respond, and they became like the laziest to respond to the situation. Although their program, everything is promising that we are dynamic, we are uh, ready for any crisis, we are responsive. And they are not. They can't move one step forward. They are worse than other state institutions, you know, ministries or <laughs> other state buildings that you don't want to get in. I mean, why do you want to get into the art museum that is more lazy and more uh, slow or not being able to respond any kind of thing that is not going according to normal schedule? I think institutions should have normal schedules, but they should be prepared for times like this and not wait for other grander, greater institutions to tell them what to do. Like UK, before Brexit, they were telling to institutions in the UK, this is the visa type you can invite people on those grants. So any artist wants to come overseas to UK, this is before Brexit. They need to apply this Tire 5 visa, which is kind of a work permit visa, which takes a lot longer to get, just to come to attend an opening and show up in UK if stay in a hotel two days because you pay for two days and go back. This was not okay because institutions at the time didn't know how to negotiate or lead the other state institutions. They lost it. And then the Brexit happened. It got even worse. They couldn't pay any international artist properly that comes overseas. They couldn't invite them on a normal, like even business visitor visa, if you think this is a business or sports visa, which they used to use. There's not even culture category that is defended. It, those institutions need to defend art institutions and need to be prepared for this. And the dynamic ones will be truly dynamic after this. And lazy ones will be truly lazy. Nobody can fake it anymore. Nobody can fake big topics and big titles, big this, big that. They really, they will come up front and it will become very clear that they are able to institutionally take care of their own stuff, take care of the artists, temporary contractors, people, they collaborate with them and they fight. When I witnessed a WhatsApp group of museum directors. I'm not part of it because I'm not a museum director, but I saw some messages there circling around and how beautiful was that some of the institutions immediately fire their stuff. You know, okay, we can't really pay anyone now. Some like we fight for paying them full time. 
we pay the, the artist as everything is according to plan, but we change the entire plan according to what's going on now mm. in a dynamic way. So if uh, administration is confused with the dynamic programming of the institution and takes over, the, forget about that institution, that institution should close tomorrow. So you were saying whatever experimentation that takes place on the ground in the scale of exhibitions, it cannot be taught independently of how the administration is run. Uh, yeah. I mean, I hear you. I totally understand that. And how about uh, the imaginary art institution? How would it respond in your mind? I mean, imaginary art is an institution that really the director should think beyond directorship, beyond his or her personal income. Administration should think beyond what is easy for them. They should think creative. They should think conceptual. They should think responsive to the urgency. And they should definitely, of all times, prioritize their public, their collaborators, their workers and public. And if they can do that, you see when you enter that institution, even in these times, they will find a way the possible that you can enter. And you will see that how unified the whole situation. When it becomes really individualized, You see how alienated it is from the public, how alienated it is from the... the immediately they get rid of uh, temporary contractors. Maybe they cannot get rid of full-time contractors. You see that they do these things immediately and then it, everybody hears about it. You just have to put the dots together and then judge the institution based on these grounds, not that what kind of uh, announcement they do and uh, what kind of online or offline programming they promise. We should not care about the promises. Right now, nobody can do promises and should do promises because we don't know what's coming right next. They should be responsive. So they should expand the meaning of public space, for instance. We don't give up the public space. We don't just go online because we give up the public space. Online has other stuff. Public space, uh, physical space has other possibilities which don't replace one another, right? They are always hand in hand nowadays. You know, they always go together. And um, we do redefinition of public space. You don't force people to go see space to see art. This is high risk, health risk, right, right now. But you can focus on the places where people are actually anyway already going. They have to go to markets. They have to go do grocery. They have to do this basic stuff in order to survive. And you have to focus on what's the new definition. It's not a public square anymore. It's a supermarket. Supermarket replaced the public square now. So you just see that how it's shifted. <laughs> it is still happening. It's not canceled. Even if somebody is state start try to cancel it, it's not canceled. It's canceled maybe a group of people, maybe a, a specific social class, but not all social classes. There is nowhere in the world right now there's a lockdown for the working class and lower working class. They yeah. are still at work. So that is the definition of public space there. And there is a definition of shift of public space. It's super simple. I think this was a great closure. Thank you so much, Ahmed. And really, I love the way you kind of weaved personal experience with much larger institutional, political, and even the political economical dimensions of being in this world and also inhabiting the art world or the art industries that we are inhabiting. So in that sense, there was lots of things to unpack. Yes. Maybe to finish, I give a good example, if we have a little bit of time. It's yeah. an exhibition I was invited in uh, 2015, and it was uh, an exhibition to happen in Fukushima. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know about uh, that project. 
But of all those invitations of all those years, I think this has been the best <laughs> because when the invitation came, Jason, a curator, was doing with a Tokyo-based collective Chimpon. They told me the disaster happened there in 2011. And mm-hmm. in 2014, they approached me and we did it in 2015. They said, this is going to be an exhibition without visitors. And when we had a coffee with Jason, he was explaining me, imagine in a normal sunny day, and we met and having this artist curator meeting. And he explains me these things in 2014, telling, yes, there won't be any visitors to this exhibition. We will install it next year. It will be there maybe five years, 10 years, 20 years. Depends when the government opens the area to the inhabitants. And definitely that will take a long time. And then he said, it is possible to go visit the zone up to five hours, ideally three hours. You can dress up with hazmat costumes and go in and, you know, install the work, see the exhibition as the artists were making the show. And this one visit to Fukushima is uh, less radiation than one long flight I would be taking to go to an exhibition in, in far Asia somewhere or overseas. He talked to doctors before he contacted me. He gave me, you know, all this scientific information and really let, let it up to me that if I want to go visit with them to the zone. So I first felt, okay, maybe it's a bit too much to go into the zone. But I come up with an idea. They installed my work in 2015 in there. There was like no visitors, nothing. And we were criticized. I think there was an article in Guardian saying, what a stupid idea to make an exhibition without visitors. Like, what are you doing? You know. <laughs> and this clever writer really harshly criticized us. A lot of people found it interesting. And now my, my show in Baku, is installed without visitors now thinking, resonating that situation. And a lot of shows like that at the moment around the world. And this show is still there. The show is still there. They just went a few weeks ago. Uh, we texted with Jason. He, he, they were back inside the zone. And I went to the zone three years later. I was going to Tokyo for another exhibition. I thought, okay, anyway, I'm going there. Not a specific trip for that. I'm definitely going to go uh, into Fukushima uh, and check this out. And we, we were in a group and we dressed up completely. We went in there. We spent five hours. It was incredible. It was like time frozen. And it's so special to experience something like that. And now that they were back, uh, every now and then they go because non-human visitors, sometimes, you know, wild pigs and so on, they come and hit the artworks and something happens, they install them again. They went and they said it was more safe inside the zone than Tokyo when a whole COVID thing was completely out of control. (laughs) You know, you need to like almost dress up the same way. And there you go, like all prepared because you know how to enter the zone, how to get out, there's all this procedure. But what's beautiful, there is no rush about this exhibition. Here and there, now he just published an article, beautiful article on E-Flux a few days ago, again analyzing. He went there with Sven Lutiken and a few other writers. They're making a publication. It's going to go on forever. There will be a museum maybe later. We We don't rush anything. And this is probably the best exhibition format that I was invited to propose an idea. And I really appreciate that slow, long-term approach, but always dynamic, always fresh, always up-to-date. The project became more relevant right now than 2015. And this is something we can look at and look at the other art institutions, how they respond to COVID, and look at how making an exhibition in Fukushima and sustaining it for so many years is just an incredible curatorial example. I would say that I was really happy that the idea first time didn't come from me, 
It came from somebody who institutionally think in a dynamic and radical way. Just uh, as a good example to have a look. Yeah, no, it's also metaphorically, I think, a good closure to our discussion. Ahmed, thank you so much for joining us. This was episode three of Ahali Conversations, where we hosted Ahmed Öğüt, a truly inspiring artist who challenges the norms with regards to how art institutions operate. Ahmed asked us to reconsider our presuppositions around how the cultural realm can be inhabited and how we can actually instigate change from within the existing institutional frameworks. You can find out more about his work and the projects we discussed from the show notes or visit us at ahali.online for more. Feel free to get in touch if you'd like to join our live conversations and the Q&A sessions. See you next time.